Hello, everyone. It's me again, Kirk Monroe, your favorite 101 history podcast reporter. And it sure is great to be back on the air. Uh, but then again, I was back on last night. But hey, it's great to be back on again. Well, uh, we are now going to be talking about another uh, colony, or should I say another one of the 13 colonies, from the book Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence. Which colony are we going to be talking about tonight? Well, to give you a little brief recap on what we've discussed already, we've talked about New Hampshire, we have talked about uh, Massachusetts, uh, Rhode Island, uh, Connecticut, and New York. We're now on to colony number six, and that colony is none other than New Jersey. Well, you know, New Jersey is a very interesting colony, but then again, the other five that we've discussed already have been just as interesting as well. But I find when I do research on these colonies that each one is different in their own um, unique way. Uh, No two of the colonies are alike, and perhaps that's a good thing because you need to have diversity amongst these uh, 13 colonies. Uh, Without the diversity, I don't know how in the long run all 13 could come together as one in uh, their overall um, fight for separation from England. Well, um, does anybody know uh, which Indian tribes, or tribe, should I say, would be inhabiting um, New Jersey well before European contact is made? Well, I learned that um, a tribe that I had mentioned uh, last night that was um, inhabiting uh, New York also happened to have uh, establishments in New Jersey, being none other than the Lenape. They were uh, inhabitants of what's known as present-day New Jersey for nearly 3,000 years, primarily along the coast. Now, it's not until the early 17th century that the first wave of European settlers and explorers come into New Jersey, And, you know, all this time I thought it was the British that came in. But then I realized something uh, some time back, that that wasn't the case. Um, But the first group of uh, settlers slash explorers who came into uh, what we know as New Jersey were none other than Dutch and Swedish um, settlers. And they were the ones who established the first settlements in New Jersey. You know, what's really interesting is that there is a place in New Jersey. It's in the southern part of the state. It uh, borders between uh, New Jersey and um, probably, I'd say, between New Jersey, Delaware, and Maryland, considering those two states, uh, along with Pennsylvania and New York, you know, border New Jersey. But when you consider the southern end of New Jersey, that um, tends to border uh, Maryland and uh, Delaware. But there is a, a village known as Swedesboro. Well, how do you think Swedesboro got its name? It's named after, um, what do you call it, Um, explorers from Sweden who came to settle in present-day New Jersey. Now, uh, I will talk a little bit more about um, the second part here, but I should go ahead and give a little 101 information on, on the matter. It wasn't until the 
about the late 17th century, going into the start of the 1660s, that the English are the ones who finally take control of the region by naming it the province of New Jersey. And I did some research on why it was why the English called it the province of New Jersey. Well, it comes under English rule after the surrender of Fort Amsterdam in 1664. Fort Amsterdam was a fort on the southern tip of Manhattan at the confluence of the Hudson and East Rivers. And it really was an administrative headquarters station, not only just for the Dutch, but for the English. The province of New Jersey was renamed by the English after the Isle of Jersey in the English Channel. And the Isle of Jersey is located near the coast of Normandy, France. And when I think of Normandy, France, I think of D-Day, June the 6th, 1944. But of course, at this time in the colonial era, there's we haven't gotten that far ahead of history yet. But nonetheless, I found it very um, worth noting that the Isle of Jersey being located in the English Channel and right near the coast of Normandy, France, is a very essential geographic um, feature uh, to know about. And I also learned that the Isle of Jersey is not a part of the United Kingdom, but the UK is legally responsible for its defenses. So that's a little interesting uh, double-edged sword, but it is safe to say that it's good to know that the uh, Isle of Jersey is um, protected by the UK with regards to defenses. Now, the Isle of Jersey was a part of the um, Duché of Normandy, whose dukes went on to become kings of England in 1066, part of the um, establishment led by William the Conqueror. Now, we go to uh, the 1670s, around the start of 1674, and by the start of 1674 and into the very, very beginning of the 18th century, New Jersey, well, what we always were told was New Jersey, was actually split into two political divisions, East and West. And East and West Jersey were considered two political divisions up until 1702 when they were finally united as one becoming New Jersey. So it is safe to say that, um, you know, we've always been told that when explorers arrived at a, uh, at a colony establishment or came to establish a settlement, we're always led to believe that what they established still exists today. Well, it may have started out as something of the opposite, but what we know in the present day obviously is different. But perhaps that's a good thing because it's, a, it, it's what I call a good eye-opener. And it's hard to believe that New Jersey became um, officially New Jersey four years before our first forefather was born, being none other than Benjamin Franklin. Now, the Lenape 
being that Indian tribe I mentioned earlier, they had their own name for for what they referred to as New Jersey. Of course, they didn't call it that, but the name is the following, and I'm going to pronounce it as best as I can, but nonetheless, it'll be a good guess. Skyichbe. It's the Lenape Indian name for land now known as New Jersey. So I, I did a little research on the Lenape Indians and where they um, settled in, um, in terms of establishing their territories in New Jersey. Their territories stretched from the Delaware River to the lower Hudson River to the western Long Island Sound. And what is what would you say... If they did, true or false, did the Lenape Indians have a relationship with Europeans? Yes, they did. But what was it primarily for? The fur trade. Okay. And when I think of the fur trade, I think of uh, beaver pelts. It is safe to say that other animals could have been involved in terms of, you know, the use of fur trade. But it's going to primarily come in terms of the, uh, with the beaver now, another uh, unique element or factor that I learned about with New Jersey was that it has had, um, even into the present day, but even in its early years of um, settlement, it was known for its broad ethnic and religious diversity. The first migrants were New, Con- New England Congregationalists, Scotch Presbyterians to Dutch Reformed Migrants. I believe it is truly safe to say that New Jersey is was far more different than, say, Jamestown, Virginia. How so? Well, when the English came to Jamestown in 1607, and and this um, and it didn't just stay like that when it was um, when the English established Jamestown. It was that way pretty much up until the end of the 1770s that Virginia was a true strong established a true stronghold allegiance to none other than that to none other than that famous church not only known as the Anglican Church but the Church of England so is it safe to say in Virginia that any other uh, religion religious entity that's Protestant related is going to be on the same level as the Anglican Church or Church of England no, it's one thing to be Protestant, but just because you're a Protestant, it does not mean that you have the same um, establishment and connection to those who are uh, affiliated with the Anglican Church. And when you look at Virginia, and this is well, even well before Thomas Jefferson established the statutes on um, the statutes for religious freedom in Virginia. One could worship freely, however, they had to be um, they had to swear their allegiance to the Anglican Church. If you did not do that, then freedom of religion does not exist um, to you. But anyways, back to um, our primary focal point here on um, what do you call it the uh, early um, establishment of New Jersey. It was primarily an, an, an agrarian and rural-based uh, setting throughout the colonial era. 
But it, it is interesting to point out that townships like Burlington and Perth Amboy became the major ports for shipping, especially to outlets like New York City and Philadelphia. And the year before 1776, being 1775, the population of New Jersey was at 120,000. That's pretty impressive when you consider that New Jersey perhaps was not the same size as Virginia, but nonetheless, it had established a colony population of up to 120,000. Now, here we go to the meat of our discussion how many men from New Jersey signed the Declaration of Independence? The answer is, uh, well, the number to choose from would be uh, anywhere between um, four and six. The answer is five. The five men who signed this famous document from New Jersey are the following. Abraham Clark, John Hart, Francis Hopkinson, Richard Stockton, and John Witherspoon. So how many of, of these signers should we talk about tonight? All five of them, yes, did play a um, unique role for New Jersey, but I think it's best to talk about three of them. Well, three-fifths. In terms of math, that's 60%. Not that the other two aren't worth sharing, but hey, sometimes you do have to, um, you know, look carefully at what's worth sharing and who contributed what and, and why it, in the end it, it is um, significant. So the three that we are going to talk about are Abraham Clark to Francis Hopkinson to John Witherspoon. Let's start with uh, Mr. Abraham Clark. He was born in the year 1726. I tell you, it seems like that's been a um, magic year um, for some of our forefathers to have been born in because um, a multitude of them seem to have been born in that year. I, I'm not sure why that seems to be the case, but it just is. Well, Mr. Clark is a Jersey boy from birth. He didn't have much formal education, but he did work hard enough to become a local surveyor. And he also became someone known as a poor man's counselor. You know what's ironic here? When you, know, you think of a counselor in 18th century time, we don't think of it as like being a modern-day school counselor or a counselor that you would go to for um, to seek professional professional help in the terms of like you know someone battling um, depression, but in Mr. Clark's day, when it's referred to as poor man's counselor, that also is referring to um, someone who is of uh, lawyer status. But here's the ironic thing with Mr. Clark: he was never admitted to the bar. So how does he get to be so skilled at um, consulting with uh, people who don't have the same knowledge as he does? Well, he just seems to have a lot of... He has a fair amount of knowledge over matters ranging from land disputes to mortgages. So he then gets referred to as being the hero of the middle class. 
So by the year 1774, he becomes deeply committed in the, in, in the uh, cause for independence. One of his first um, establishments or roles is to serve on the New Jersey Committee of Safety. You know, war is not a, um, it's not a game. It's a very serious matter. And what history has taught us is that during the American Revolution, war did tear families apart. And for starters, it tore families apart based on loyalty. As I've mentioned before from previous podcasts, just because one was a patriot in their family, it didn't mean that everybody else went along with him. There were family members who were um, loyalists, and it was safe to say that patriots and loyalists in divided households probably did not speak to one another. They were probably disowned by the opposite family member. And it is safe to say that even neighbors within a community were um, not only just harassed by the opposite party, but in some instances lost their lives because of differences in allegiances. Or should I say due to allegiance um, differences. Well, what's very unfortunate for Abraham Clark is that two of his sons were captured during the war and both of them were forced onto prison ships. And I mentioned this uh, last night that, um, that Francis Lewis from New York, his wife was uh, taken as a prisoner for about uh, two and a half years until she died in 1779. And if that was bad enough, both of Abraham Clark's sons were, um, were sent on prison ships that were, um, that were like, I can't compare it to what the Jewish people, 